Al Miller's on time. He's sick. He's got stuff to talk about. It's Easter, and this is the Gray Zone. It's Easter weekend. I'm Zone Zach with Gray Al. Sports, one day only. You can call me Jesus. All right. I don't know if that's going to make the cut. <laughs> How do we do? <laughs> We're off to a great start. Okay. Well, All Zach. right. Hit me, hit me with it. All right. So first, when I listened to our pod last week, I just felt like I absolutely derailed anything you ever brought up. So I want to personally apologize from the bottom of my heart for that. Are you and, apologizing to me or to the listeners? Well, uh, maybe a bit of both. A little bit, bit okay. a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. That's fair. Uh, I never feel like you derail say, stuff. But sorry, what did you say? I, I never feel like you derail stuff. But uh, but go for it. Well, um, just before we get into it, I wanted to say I was at eighteen nationals all week, and I saw one of your kids, uh, Lawrence Ivanov. Yeah, uh, Lawrence, man. I hadn't seen him since since you and I were at under. 14 orange bowl years ago the orange sure. bowl that didn't get completed that they cleared kids out of there because of some hurricane or something do you remember Good that times yeah vaguely yeah anyway so i didn't even realize it was him because he's like a man now but one thing that i will say is i was watching watching matches and there was one kid playing who was like popping serves and popping forehands and emotionally the kid was just like stoic as all hell and i was just like who is that kid that's and then him. I found out later it was uh, it was Lawrence. So I just wanted to shout out that, like, I think okay, as a coach, I always think it's really, really cool when there are players that don't act like children when they're children. And I just think throughout <laughs> the week, through highs and lows, I just think Lawrence did such a great job of just being a professional with his emotions and wanted to shout you out for that. Ah, uh, I don't I don't know if I if I deserve any of the credit there. Yeah. Funny, fun, funny fact. Actually, I realized I was on the plane back from Italy and realized that they were uh streaming matches at 18s and so i was sitting in the back row of the plane the plane was empty and i was watching lawrence's match and the flight attendant tapped me on the shoulder he's like you gotta go (laughs) so i was i was watching uh i didn't manage to finish i think he actually got injured because he pulled out so i think he had some problems with his knee but i haven't spoken to him yet but uh, no i mean shout out to lawrence that guy uh yeah i mean that guy has worked so hard and and especially on the mental side too, like the, 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 the time we spent talking about that and working on that and the, the effort and maturity that he's showed. Um, it, it's nice, nice to see that it's, uh, it's noticeable, but he's, uh, for sure. he, he deserves all the credit there for sure. Oh, uh, cool. Cool. Well, anyway, okay. This week I really wanted to jump into, I guess, things related to motor learning right now, like everything else we talk about on the pod, um, it'll start with motor learning and it'll end in some small fishing village in Sri Lanka because that seems to be the, the way the things segue here. But just as a quick breakdown, or I guess how Wikipedia would define motor learning, motor learning refers to broadly to the changes in the organism's movement that reflect changes in the structure and function of the nervous system. I'm almost done, Zach. Bear with me. Motor learning occurs over varying time scales and degrees of complexity. Humans learn to walk or, or sorry, humans learn to walk or talk over the course of years, but continue to adjust uh, to changes in height, weight, and strength. Thank you, Wikipedia. Well, that's been well, the gray that... zone, everybody. Take uh, okay. <laughs> so that's sort of broadly what we're getting into. Um, I've mentioned this author before on the pod. Uh, it's a guy named David Epstein who does a lot of really interesting um, books that are related to skill development or sport development. One of his books is called The Sports Gene. So The Sports Gene came out maybe 10 or so years ago. And long story short, it's a rebuttal to Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours rule, where David Epstein essentially had this theory. It was like, well, it can't always be 10,000 hours for every sport. So the long story short is he did um, very specific studies on a variety of different sports to figure out like, well, 
on average, like how many hours does it take to get specialized in a sport? And I know right now we're segueing away from motor learning, but bear with me. So I just wanted to start before we get into the motor learning thing. I'm just like, he, there's obviously some skills that are a higher degree of difficulty that take longer to perfect than other sports. So for instance, he theorizes that to become a professional basketball player can take anywhere from 3000 hours to 4000 hours of training to reach a certain mark. Now, there's genetic things that come into that where it's like if you're six foot eight or taller in the US, there is something like a 4% chance that you can play in the NBA. Um, and I'm, you know me, I'm usually going to get some of these statistics wrong, but it's something like that. There's actually like a very, like a great chance to play in the NBA if you're over a certain height. So that plays a role into it. Um, there is other sports uh, that were maybe closer to 10,000 hours, but one of the sports he brought up was tennis. And in, in all of his research, tennis is actually closer to a 14,000 hour sport which I just thought was really interesting. And it made a lot of sense for a variety of reasons. But I think especially now, if you look at like, or at least a year ago, two years ago, the average age of the top 10 players in the ATP was 27 years old. So to me, from a 14 hour perspective of training, that kind of makes sense. So before I go deeper into this, do you have any thoughts? No, I'll just, I'll just say that like, um, David, you know, I'm I'm ashamed that I have not yet read uh, Epstein's books because they're talked about all the time, and I and I've come across different insights from them and read excerpts, but I just haven't read them cover to cover, and I'm uh, ashamed to admit that because I know that they're good. But um, no, it's it's super interesting. Cool. Um, yeah, I mean, it's the only his sports team book is like the only book I've actually read in my adult life. So there you go. So that's why it's the only book that I reference in this podcast as well. But <laughs> um, so getting into it. And one of the big things about his book is to figure out like, well, okay, how come some athletes reach certain heights and other athletes don't reach certain heights? And so amongst a variety of studies that are not his, there are studies by a lot of other people, but um, he theorizes that athletes break down into four genetic categories. And I'm going to break those categories down for you. They're, they're based on genetics and they're based on how well they respond to training. So those four categories are the top being um, an athlete can be a, have a high athletic baseline and be a fast responder to training. That's the top. Um, the second one is an athlete can have a high athletic baseline, but be a low responder to training. The third is um, an athlete can have a low athletic baseline, but be a high responder to training. And the bottom one, the the Alistair Miller level is low athletic baseline and low responder to training. So um, before I start asking a bunch of questions, he then gets into all this stuff where it's like every great athlete ever um, has always been ha had a high athletic baseline and been a fast responder to training. And his whole thing is like, it's impossible for you to be a 20 time Grand Slam champion unless you are that. Mm -hmm. And so we've talked on this pod a lot about like, I have to believe everything is trainable. But reading that kind of breaks my heart a bit because it's like, well, there's so much we can control, but like, how much can we really control? Yeah. So I, I sort of open that thesis up to you just to. I guess get get your thoughts on like the to start with just the high athletic baseline and fast responder to training and what do you think about that theory? Yeah, I mean, I think it makes perfect sense and and we sort of we sort of have talked about it. Um, we sort of talked about it a little bit, I think, in the very first episode um, when we talked about sort of mindsets of of high performance. And I remember one of the things I said was you have to be okay with the fact that you can work ten times harder than someone and still have that person beat you. Because right. that could easily happen if they're just more athletic or had other advantages. It's like that's yeah. an, an entirely reasonable possibility and there's nothing you can do to change that. 
And so yeah. you kind of have to accept it. So uh, I, yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. I'm, I'm curious how, you know, what goes into what he, re- what he, de- what he defines as, uh, you know, how quickly they respond to training. Yeah. Um, I'm curious what goes into that. If it's, if he's talking about the physical side or the, like the mental side or whatnot, but, um, but I think nah, that makes perfect sense. And I, the other thing that's interesting is like, I don't, I also think it'll be interesting to see what happens in the future, but up until, you know, up until 20 years ago, it was totally normal to just win one slam and have that be like the greatest accomplishment of your, of your life. For sure. Thomas Johansson. Our, our, our perspective has been skewed so much by, by the big three that yeah. now people go like, oh, I win one slam and I'm only one twentieth of the way. It's like, and maybe that's going to be the new norm, of course, because of course, over the last 20 years, talent detection and sports science and, and all these things have increased what we're able to draw out of these elite athletes and, and maximize their potential. So of course, maybe that is the new norm is that, that, that we're always going to be identifying these top genetic prospects and they're going to be, and there's always going to be one or two at the top of the game, winning 20 slams. Maybe that's the future, but up until very recently, that wasn't the norm. The norm was that you would win one or two and it was just, and it was something to be happy about. And so I think that perspective is also worthwhile to keep in mind. Like, you know, the, you look at like Dominic team's accomplishment is like, that's phenomenal. Right. And I don't think, I don't think as players or as coaches, we can be sitting there going like, if I don't, if I don't develop someone with 20 grand slams, then uh, all is lost. Yeah. Well said. Okay. Jumping in on that. The Dominic team thing, if his career ended today, would you, do you think the narrative would be that his career was unsuccessful? Wow. I mean, I think there would be a feeling uh, that he didn't max out his potential. Maybe not for, maybe not for his level, but for the longevity of it. Because we know that tennis players can play at a high level for longer. That's been proven. And he has sort of, you know, he had long periods of injury and then now he's not back to his old self. Um, Although beat Shelton the other day, which is pretty cool. Yeah. But uh, so I don't think, like I said, I, I don't think in terms of peak level, it would be fair to say, oh, that was a failed career because he reached an incredibly high level. But in terms of the longevity or the amount of time he stayed at that level, I think people could argue like, oh, that wasn't that wasn't as as good as it could have been. Yeah, that's wild to think. Going back to your point about yeah, the yeah, for sure. Um, so getting back into I guess the genetic side of things, um, if we look at the top two categories of those four characteristics, or the sorry, of the top two categories of those four categories, one of them is the high athletic baseline, the fast responder, and the second one is high athletic baseline, low responder. But it seems like the science as it relates to this suggests that your genetic makeup is more important than potentially what what you do while you're alive that was going to be my that was going to be my question though was does the obviously high athletic baseline and high response to training is the best and low athletic baseline and low response to training is the worst but does he does he uh rank the other two yeah i mean that's the order he has them in where it's like that okay okay yeah number two is high athletic baseline and low responder to training and three is Mm -hmm. low athletic baseline high responder to training now as a coach it's funny that you brought this up because i think I think like you, I'd be curious, okay, from a coaching perspective, give me the low athletic baseline, high responder to training. I'd rather have, mm-hmm. I'd rather have that as a coach, but maybe I'm wrong. 
Well, it's more fun, certainly. I mean, yeah. we're in this to see we're in this to see progress, and right. obviously, high response to training will will lead to uh, higher rates of progress. Yeah. Um. So that's you know that's what motivates us. But I could see the argument for you know high athletic base and low response to training being better. Yeah. But I also think it's interesting with all that. Where if you watch any sport, uh, like basketball, tennis, whatever, there's many sports, Zach. Um, <laughs> It's funny how often commentators will say like, oh, yeah, I mean, it's like his dad was a tennis player or his mom was a professional basketball player or so and so. Right. And it seems like mm. it seems so common that whatever athlete is on TV getting paid millions of dollars, it's like they come from a genetic makeup where their parent was an athlete or their parents oh, parent sure. was an athlete, and so on. So it's interesting where it's like. If you're if you're a, a player and your parents weren't athletic or whatever, it's like you're almost doing the work for yourself but you're almost doing the work for your next generation of kin to inherit some of your ability and then maybe it's like their next level of kid now there's actually genetic makeup where there's been a few generations of athlete and it's just, it's a wild concept to think about yeah i mean for sure there's that for sure there's that link it would be interesting to separate out what percent of that cor- correlation is due to genetics and what percent of it is due to like the parent has been down this pathway before and so they know even if it's not the same sport but they know sort of what the mindset is and how to teach it and how to look out for good coaches and how to how hard to push and how to get them into tournaments and like i wonder what percentage of it is that as well it's probably primarily the genetics don't get me wrong but i think it'd be interesting to separate those two out um and then the other thing I would say, and once again, this is, uh, you know, it would have been good if I'd read the book and then I could have a more informed discussion. But I'd also be curious, like when he talks about athletic base, is that purely genetics that he's talking about? Because, of course, you can all, I, I, for me anyway, there's a big difference between a kid who from the ages from the age of zero to five was doing nonstop physical activity yeah. and coordination they're climbing yeah. things they're jumping on things they're running around they're throwing hitting kicking catching whatever manipulating objects like they're tracking things with their eyes like for me there's a big difference between a kid who's doing that from zero to five and a kid who's sitting around you know maybe playing with some toys or whatever i think that has to make an impact on your quote-unquote athletic base for sure even if it's not genetics yeah, no, well said, well said. And I'd have to do a deeper, deeper dive into how all these studies were done. But as sort of at, at face value, I do know some of the stuff was like, they would, and this goes back into something we teased at the end of last pod, but they did a lot of studies to do with, well, let's test the athlete, um, and let, not even the athlete, okay, let's test the player who is not yet an athlete at whatever age, but at the same time, let's test their parents. Mm. So they had this data set of like, what were the parents able to do with specific testing? What were, what's the kid able to do with specific testing? And one of the tests they, they did was like, if they were like VO2 max. Oh, yeah. sorry. You said, have I heard? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So just for anybody listening, VO2 max, essentially like it's your, your lungs ability to, um, I guess, store and quickly get oxygen back in your lungs. Is that a fair way to describe it, Zach? Yeah, I mean, neither one of us knows the technical definition. I thought it was more about your lungs' ability to, like, like how much oxygen they are able to, like the, like how much oxygen they are able to transfer to you. Yeah, okay, um, that that makes yeah, we're on the like, same same wavelength there. Yeah, yeah. Right? Anyway, yeah. So obviously, people with a, a high athletic baseline, they're, um, and without being trained, their VO two two max is higher than somebody who doesn't have a high athletic baseline, right? So like those are one of the things that they use mm-hmm. to determine 
and one of the many many tests they use to determine like what's a high athletic baseline um and then yeah. when they train it they give you a high athletic baseline but it's like you go you run every day for two weeks and they they measure the volume of your vo2 max again and it's like well to see how much progress you've actually made right so just as an example that's one of the ways they would have trained something like that you know yeah no that makes sense yeah um so i guess bring this all back together and going back to like the motor learning part of this is like i think we've all had athletes where the athlete learns things really really quickly or it's like you tell an athlete something once and they kind of get it and i'm talking now more from like maybe it's a technical point of view as opposed to like, it, like it's a physically doing something technical point of view as opposed to maybe a psychological or a tactical thing. Um, Sorry, say that again. So I think like, as I mentioned, the, some players learn things faster than others, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and I think sometimes you can see that where you can see that more with developing technical skills and maybe physical skills than mm-hmm. you can with, um, like psychological or tactical skills. Not not sure. always, but I think it's easier to see that. Would you agree? Yep, definitely. Okay. So it's interesting, like talking about these four subsets of athletes and then linking it back to the athletes that maybe you've worked with historically or that have been in your program. You're like, well, if I were to guess what category my athletes fall into here, would that would that change the way that I'd go about their coaching, number one? And then two, is it like, is it beneficial to a coach to know essentially like what's their, what is their athletic baseline like? Are they a fast responder training? Like, are there benefits in doing that? Or are you better off just going into it being like, no, like every one of my athletes is going to be dope. And every one of my athletes has this, this base or ability to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah, that's a, a really interesting question. My gut response is that it's not particularly useful. It's only useful in talent identification and selection if we want to use if we want to use those terms but like that's my my gut response because presumably i mean here's the thing is that like presumably epstein's argument in making these categories is that you cannot change this yeah right presumably his argument is that you cannot change their athletic base and you cannot change their response their responsiveness to training If you could change those things, then they would all be high responsive to training because in theory it's changeable. And then there's no point in having the category. So if these things aren't changeable, the only thing that can affect you, the only way that can affect you in your job as a coach is to say, I am, or I am not going to coach them because I do, or I don't believe in their potential. Right. But once you are coaching them, what's the, what's the point in, what's the point in knowing what profile they have? Of course, if you say now, I'm not saying if you recognize that they learn they're more responsive to a certain type of training and mm. less responsive to another type of training, yeah. that's one thing. Or if you recognize that they possess certain genetic strengths and not others, and you're going to focus, you're going to dedicate your efforts onto those things. That's a different story. Right. But if we talk about how it affects your, your, your overall coaching with them, I don't see how it plays a role. Yeah, that's fair. And I'm not sure I can debate that. So then, and maybe this is an obvious answer, but in terms of talent ID for Sweden or for Canada, um, I'm getting the sense that you think some sort of testing of parents might be valuable for talent ID for national sports organizations. And I'm not uh, trying to get in trouble by asking this question either. You know what I mean? I'm not trying to get like... That's like, such an interesting question. I'll be totally honest with you. It's, it's not something that I've thought about. I mean, I made that joke at the end of the last episode because I remember 
years and years ago when I was working in Montreal um, and I was helping out with some selection at the, at the club I was at some selection for young kids. And we, ju- and we just made a joke, but we basically, there was like a, there was like a line that like parents had to stand in with their kids to go get registered for the tests or whatever. And we were putting out the cones for like the line of, cause there was going to be, you know, 50, hundred kids or whatever. We we're putting out the cones to like have a little path so that the parents knew how to queue up. And we were joking, like we should just put the, make the parents run, you know, run this sort of slalom <laughs> cone thing and then just, and just pick the kids based on that. And that was just sort of an offhand <laughs> remark that we laughed at, but it's, it's been in my head ever since. Um, hence me bringing it up last week, but it's not something that I've thought about um, uh, at any length. I don't know. I mean, in theory, I mean, in theory, the having athletic parents increases the chances that the child's going to be athletic, but the the degree of correlation, I'm assuming, varies, right? They could Plastic. be. Plastic, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, of course, because there's two parents involved, but like they could be more athletic. They could be less athletic. They could be the same level of athletic. So I don't know. It feels like you'd get more relevant information from testing the kid than from testing the parent. But like I said, it's not something that I've thought much about. Right. Okay. Okay. And then I guess just in wrapping up this part of the conversation, I don't know. And I think you're indirectly alluding to this, but overall, I don't know how beneficial it is as a coach outside of just having something fun to read. But like, how beneficial is it to know that these four things exist if, if you buy into it? Because I, I do think I went through a little bit of a period with some athletes where it's like, well, okay, and this is not not consciously, maybe this is more subconsciously, but it's like, well, if they're not, they don't have an athletic baseline, they're not a faster runner training, like, what's the point? Mm. You know, and I was, you, you know me well enough to know that like that's not really true. It's like I still would, would bust my ass with anybody that's that's on court with me, but it's like, yeah, of course, is it helpful to have that knowledge in brackets in the back of your mind? I don't know. It's like, well, if it's not helpful, yeah. it's not going to help you improve the ability of your athlete and we're not going to use it for talent ID of any sort, then does it have value at all? I mean, I guess if you had, if you had concrete proof that this athlete, but that's the other thing is how would you, I don't know how do you, I don't know how he measures this, but if you had concrete proof that this athlete has low responsiveness to training, because keep in mind, I, I'm only going off of one example that you gave, but like someone's responsiveness to VO2 max training might not be their same responsiveness to technical training and and skill acquisition. Right. Right. And for that matter, certainly might not be their same responsiveness to mental coaching and to, you know, tactical development. For sure. Right. But I suppose if you knew, if you had concrete proof that this person has low responsiveness to training, then potentially that would entitle you to cut them a little bit of slack. Right. And so to, to, so to understand to under potentially it could help you understand your player better and know how hard to push them because again conversely if you know that they have really high responsiveness to training and they're and 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 maybe and and you're not seeing that on court then maybe you go okay they're not pushing hard enough although i'd be i'd be a little careful with that approach but in theory knowing this about your player could under could help you know how hard to push them and when based on the profile they have but i think you would have to know you would have to know things to such a degree that i that i don't think it's it's possible yeah, that's that's fair. That's fair for sure. Okay. Well, and, and moving on, I mean, this is sort of the getting into the more motor learning part of it. Like this is sort of a a base in a sense of like people are going to learn motor learning things at different speeds and at different times in different ways. Mm-hmm. And this gets into being more tennis specific with technical development. Are you familiar with like um, Steve Smith? Absolutely. Okay. So for those that don't know, Steve Smith is like um, he's a pretty famous tennis coach that's developed a system called uh, the 
Great Base, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. And he has um, a very successful academy in some part of Florida. But what used, he also used, does... used to be in Florida. He's now in, I think, uh, Memphis. Oh, for real? I could be I could be wrong. Yeah, he moved a couple of years ago, but okay. um, he's somewhere out, somewhere out there now. Gotcha. Um, so one of Steve's big things is like he has this, I guess, training tool for coaches where it's like everything is done a certain way for their players. So he trains coaches that go back to their home environments around the world and they sort of run the great base with Steve Smith model of coaching. Um, it's if you're a high performance coach, it's very recognizable. You can go to any tournament in the world and you can it's very easy to see uh, a great base player. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I guess to clarify for those who don't know, it, he has a, a particular uh, technical model, let's say, um, right. that makes the people who follow his his method, if they're if they get their players to do what they're being asked uh, to do, then the players are very easily identifiable. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and there's okay, there's a very successful academy in Toronto, um, Richmond Hill Lawn and Country Club, Golf and Country Club, something like that, um, that is big into the Steve Smith model. And I've always thought it's really interesting because, A, it's like, hey, well, all of your players do the same thing. So as coaches, is it is it easier in a sense where it's like, well, everybody is going to do your players are always going to do the same technical things. Is that easier? Um, but then I think, too, there's like Casey Curtis, who is the the childhood coach of Milos Ronick, is, is has a similar system where it's not the great base approach by any means. But like you can tell a Casey Curtis player because it's like the technical fundamentals. I wouldn't even say technical fundamentals the technical look or physical look of their players is almost identical. Mm -hmm. And so I've always been sort of critical of these approaches that are like, that are like that, that are just like all of our players are going to look the same and do the same all the time. Um, However, I've been thinking about it a little bit lately, Zach, and I don't think even though the way that we would do things at the Supreme court is not a Steve Smith model or a Casey Curtis model, but in reality, I don't think we're different. Or I do mm. think like our program has an identity of like technical fundamentals that we want our players to have. Mm. So is it fair of me to be critical of a Steve Smith model or a Casey Curtis model? Um, if in reality, like I'm no different. So I don't know if that's a question or not, but I just wanted to get oh. first your thoughts on like that one technical approach for every player type of model. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll think I'll, I'll, I'll go off and ramble in a different directions. And then next week I can apologize for derailing the conversation, but uh, I'll, 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 I'll just talk about a couple of things. I mean, the first thing I'll say is like, um, you know, I, I've spoken to Steve Smith. I, I wouldn't say I know him, but we've spoken a couple of times um, back once again, ages and ages ago, I mean, yeah, well, probably 10 years ago. I mean, I consumed sort of all his content that was online. He had a, he had an online course for coaches and I went through all of that um, and watched all sorts of stuff. And even, at one point just wrote him an email. I was like, Hey, can I call you? I want to ask some questions. And, and we spoke for 45 minutes to an hour. Super nice guy. Oh, great. Super, super passionate guy. Um, so you're the guy way is, more in the know about this than I am, which is good. Well, d- debatable, but I mean, super, super nice guy, super passionate about coaching and player development. Um, you know, the, the funny thing is, and, and a lot of what he preaches is really interesting because he preaches like um, a physics, you know, a physics informed an evidence-based approach to, to technical development. Um, but he still gets, in my opinion, some, some technical things wrong, um, in his, in his checkpoints and his, in his approach. Um, and then he also doesn't coach technique the way that I would coach it. It's very closed skill. It's very repetitive. Like you said, everyone ends up looking the same. Um, and 
but the the ultimate thing or the but as you mentioned he has developed tons of great players for sure right and it goes a little bit back to what we talked about last week in terms of demanding this which is that he's great as far as i can gather i haven't seen him in person but he's great at instilling a culture of you know and, and instilling a work ethic yeah you know the players he's had players live at his house they practice for hours they do exactly the type of practice that he says they work their butts off um they're fully committed to it and all of these things lead to them being good despite the fact that they might not have uh, uh you know perfect technique or they might have uh, they might be doing some things that are in my opinion uh inefficient and that the teaching approach used maybe wasn't as efficient as it could be if if you you know if you see things the way i do in terms of skill acquisition but he's very very good at instilling that culture and that work ethic and 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 being demanding um and so i can't even remember now what you asked me <laughs> no i guess um well i guess i'm gonna ask you a question about what you just said do you think there's merit psychological merit in like if you have a player that's in one of those programs like a like a Casey Curtis program or a Steve Smith program. Oh, I remember and... your question. But <laughs> are we going are we going back to your first question or do you want me to do you want to let no, me jump in please, please. You... Okay. I remember your question. Um I think I think uh, yes, I think you're being a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a hypocrite if you're if you're criticizing um you know other coaches or programs and then you're and then you're doing the same thing. But I think there's the difference between a technical model and technical principles, right? And so Could you elaborate I will try to, although as I say it, I'm not sure I can, but I would say that I want all my players, this comes as no surprise to you, I want all my players to have good timing, rhythm, balance, momentum, right? Some some combination of that, or however you, yeah. timing, balance, rhythm, timing, momentum, rhythm, whatever. I want to have, I want I want my players to all have, have that. Now, there's different ways of going about that. Right. They might play with different grips. They might have different preparations. They might have different. So they might follow different technical models, but they're still going to have good timing, good balance, good rhythm, good momentum. I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure if I can call that. I, I don't know if I can call that a principle as opposed to a model. Maybe it's just a different model, I guess. Um, but I, I think there's nothing wrong with there's nothing wrong with your players looking the same if the things that they all do the same are the things that they absolutely need to do to be successful. Well said. Right? In my case, I believe that it's timing, balance, rhythm, momentum. But if all your players look the same on another aspect, then you better be prepared to justify, you better be prepared to explain why that is actually essential. Because otherwise, you've wasted at least some time whether it was five minutes or five hours i don't know but you've wasted at least some time in still you know forcing them to be a certain way that maybe wasn't that wasn't necessary because it's not necessary to be successful yeah i think that's really well said um all right i'll take also... it I, I wasn't sure if the point landed but i'll take it no no i i mean i think so i think 100 percent it did um cool. and i think that's where in calling myself out on my my own bullshit at the start of this is like i think that's what I'm talking about as well. It's like there's, I think every coach is going to have these things they look for in their athletes, whatever. It's just some of them might be more physically noticeable about the way that an athlete swings a racket as opposed to like some variance in how an athlete might look, but still having mm -hmm. some key technical fundamentals or whatever. 
Um, do you think there's psychological merit in a program like Casey's or a program like Steve's in the sense of if if you're the athlete, is it's like just really believing that a your coaches are really really passionate. But this is the way you swing the racket. This is the way your legs go down. This is the way you're shooting. Like, is there merit for a player in seeing a bunch of other players in their environment do the exact same thing successfully, and knowing that you're doing the exact same thing? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think I know what you mean. I think yeah, there is. I just don't think it has to be that, mm. right? But I think it could be. It could be as simple as like, you know, you do, you have, you have three, four drills and every freaking player you coach is going to do these drills. I don't think there's anything really wrong with that because everywhere we know we have to hit cross courts. We know we have to hit uh, down the lines. We know we have to do it's like, so if you have something like that, where you go like this player before you hit it, the player on the court next to you did it. They, they've all done this drill. This we've got, we've got norms. I can tell you the record for this drill. We got to like, we're going to do this day in, day out. I think like that's good. And I think, I think all my players, would would tell you that i that i talk about timing and i talk about get the ball in the middle of the strings and like uh, you know so i think that feeling of your your coach being on you and that feeling of other people have done this and we're all focusing on these things i think that's i think that's uh, beneficial but it doesn't have to be specific grips or specific preparations or elbow positions or whatnot hmm. yeah well i'll wrap up this part of it by saying um again richmond hill kids have been kicking my boys asses for years. So as much as like, I'm sometimes, uh, you know, I me, mean, I like that fun, but sometimes I'm critical of a Steve Smith model, but it's like mm-hmm. the results sometimes can be really good. Like some of their, some of their players are incredible. Yeah. Um, and same with like uh, Chris Manzanelli, who's, who's doing a Casey Curtis model in Toronto as well. It's like his, his girls have been kicking the few girls that I coach. I mean, it's, they do a really good job. So I don't, I don't mean this to be a harp on session by any means, because we both agree there's, there's lots of ways and they're, they've clearly been very committed to the way that they're going to do it. And there's success in that for sure. No. And I'll, and I'll just, I'll just repeat. I mean, first of all, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing I hate more than if I reach out to someone who's experienced and I say, Hey, can I pick your brain on something? And they ignore me or they act like they're too good for me or they don't have time. Of course people are busy and I respect that, but I, you know, there's this, you can still be polite and say, Hey, yes, or Hey, I'll give you 30 seconds or Hey, no, no, thanks or whatever. Um, and on the flip side of it, there's nothing I love more when someone goes like, yeah, sure. Come on by. Like you can watch me coach. You can ask me questions. Let's have a phone call. And Steve Smith was exactly like that. So I'll repeat, I'll echo that statement. First of all, that he's a really nice guy and super passionate, but also, yeah, I'd encourage anyone who, um, who's curious, I guess, to go check out what he does simply because I think a lot of people, um, even just people who've been educated in, in the Canadian coaching context would look at it immediately and go like, what is this? Because as I said, it's very closed. It's very strict. Um, it's very model based, essentially. But it's it leads to some really interesting reflections. Because is it the way I would coach? No. But as we said, he has developed players, so it really forces you to reflect as a coach. If you believe that there's only that, like you cannot be a good coach by being model based, or you cannot be a good coach by uh, by doing a million closed drills and basket drills and stuff you're going to have your assumptions checked when you go see what Steve Smith does and what results he's had. So it really leads to some interesting reflections on, on what makes a good coach and, and, and a good program. Yeah. Well said, dude. Wow. You're crushing this week. eh? Holy crap. Hey um, man, Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday. Okay. So that gets into sort of the next point where um, in the coach three, a lot of the technical development work and you know, we're still on motor learning was through this concept, I guess, of like coaching through feelings. Is that fair to say? Um, I don't, I mean, I think there's tons of coaching through feelings in, in 
Canadian coaching. I don't remember it being a specific part of my coach three, but it was also a long time ago. So, okay. Well, it was, yeah, it was four years but, ago, five years ago. was a long time ago. Jeez, man, come on. Um, <laughs> well, it was also, yeah, and it was a different coach three than your coach three. So that's true. That's true. That's things true. things yeah. might've changed, but yeah. So in terms of motor learning, I mean, I've certainly had a lot of success in trying to have athletes feel something that might not actually be happening in order to get them to do a certain like motor pattern to feel more confident with it. Right. So mm-hmm. I guess in your own coaching, um, would you, would you always relate things if you're doing technical stuff to how an athlete might feel or the actual reality of what the swing is doing? If you know what I mean? Yeah, I think I get you. Um, well, I think there's two things. The first is that the, our job when developing skills is to get them to be able to do it. And usually that involves, we have to get them to feel it, right? It's it's not about what they know, it's about what they can do, right? right? And that's important to recognize. There's a huge difference between those two things. Plenty of athletes can tell you what they should be doing. And they say, I know what I have to do. I have to do this, I have to do that. But they can't feel it and they can't do it. So that's the first thing. And we talk about, I mean, first of all, if we talk about learning styles, like learning styles has been debunked time and time again. Learning styles is BS, um, at least in an academic context. True? Like, oh, in an academic context, it's complete BS. Yeah, Maybe yeah, we'll come yeah. back There's, to that at some point because I, I, I'd like to rack your brain on that. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there, people, express a, people express a preference for how they receive information, but it makes no difference on their actual learning. Mm-hmm. Um, once again, this is academic context, of course, I, I haven't read on, on in coaching context, but I, I would imagine it's similar. And so, I, but I only bring that up to say, so when we talk about like visual auditory kinesthetic, uh, put your energy into kinesthetic. They have to feel it. There's no point if they can, they see a video and they, oh, this is what a good forehand looks like. Uh, bullshit. They need to be able to feel it. So I think that's the first thing I would say. Um, but then in terms of actually using, when we talk about using feelings in Canadian coaching, correct me if I'm wrong, but usually it's a lot of like, uh, have, you know, feel like you're pushing the ball, feel like you're smacking the ball, feel like you're punching the ball, feel like you're catching the ball or whatever. Um, and I would say back when I did, I don't even know if this is my coach too, or if I just picked it up from watching Louis stuff, but, um, you know, there were four, four ways to do technical or to, four ways to teach technique. And it was analogy, progression, constraint, and learning transfer or skill transfer. And, um, Although I, although I would maybe argue there's also, there's maybe one or two others, but anyway, but all, all that to say that for me, feelings is a form of analogy, essentially, right? You're trying to say, imagine you're pushing the ball. Imagine you are cracking a whip. Imagine you are catching the ball. You're using an analogy to get them to, to feel a certain thing and do it. So it's a useful tool, but it's not the only tool. Yeah, fair. Um, I don't think I have anything to add to that. You're just, you're crushing this week. There you go. <laughs> I'll, I'll, if you don't have anything to add, I'll just jump in on one thing. Cause you said, you talked about uh, coaching through feelings and I'll just throw this out there. Cause it's a pet peeve of mine. And what's the point of having a podcast? If you can't, if you can't rant briefly about something, there is a ton of feeling talk in coach education in Canada, right. Yep. And in the, in the curricula, whether it's instructor CP one and all the stuff and all the stuff with Louis and it's fantastic. I have a pet peeve because I've seen this happen where we talk amongst coaches and we go, you know, it's really important for the players to have a push feeling right on this type of shot or this. We want them to have a push feeling or, uh, you know, we want them to have a catching feeling in this situation or whatever. And then they go out on court to the player and they go, okay, hit this ball and have a push feeling. And that that's, that's nothing. Then you've just, you've just used 
a different technical term. You might right. as well have said have a long hitting zone because to them, if you say push feeling, they don't know what the fuck that means, right? Yeah. Now, if you say, okay, imagine you're pushing something heavy. What would that look like? How would you push it? You notice when you push, you do this. Okay, so now let's imagine that you're pushing the ball instead of hitting it. Okay, boom. Now you've painted a picture. They understand the feeling. They can transfer it. If you just go say, okay, try to have a pushing feeling. That doesn't mean anything to them. No, they don't sure. feel that. And so I think we have to, I, I feel like sometimes coaches have lost sight of the purpose of feelings is they were not technical terms. It was so that you could paint a picture for the player, use an analogy, and it's meant to be something that they can feel, not just a thought in their head of, oh, I have to push this ball. I have to jab this ball. Um, It's meant to be something that they can feel. It's just my my pet peeve I throw it out there. And to jump in on that, I have a couple of athletes who are, I wouldn't say are struggling with certain things, but who are, who can do some things really, really well in certain situations, but they struggle to maintain it all the time. I mean, that's tennis. And so what I've been trying to do a lot of lately is like, it's not me telling the athlete what the feeling is, but when they're successful in it in training or in a match, be like, Hey, what, what did it feel like when that was happening? Yeah. And you try to get them to describe what the feeling is. And what I found is like, A, as a coach, it's challenging because they athletes, in my opinion, generally have a very difficult time describing using some form of adjective, what something feels like. Mm. So it's A, it's like, well, they, you have to get, they have to get more used to doing it, but then it goes back to, again, it's like, well, now, when you're in a competitive context, like, hey, when you go out there and it's like whatever situation it's like, remember to make it feel the way you wanted to feel, whatever that word was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's interesting. I mean, it's like it's it's helpful. But again, going back to to your rant on things, it's like. There's Tennis Canada or there's a ITF coaching buzzwords as it relates to feelings, but it's way more important that the athlete can feel it whatever way they describe the feeling being. That's more important than the technical definition that one might use in a, in a coaching course. A hundred percent. And I, and I made that mistake in the past where I would stick to the, like the, the, you know, tennis Canada, like feeling terminology and and instead of adapting it to what the player was saying. And I've had times when for the player, they use a word where I go like, there's no way I would use that word to describe it, but that's what it feels like to them. And so I'm like, okay, do that again. Make that, you have that feeling, have that feeling. And I keep using that word because that's what it feels like to them. Right. Sure. And if you and if you listen to pros, it doesn't even have to be tennis, but you listen to golf pros or whatever, talk about the types of shots they're going to, you know, to talk about what they're doing on a certain shot. They'll describe some technical things. I choke up here. I, I, you know, I flick my wrist here or whatever. But very often they'll also talk about the feeling. I'm trying to come around the ball here. I'm trying to touch the ball here. I'm trying to slice this. I'm trying to, you know, they talk about how it feels to them. This is the language that that athletes use. And so we have to uh, we have to raise their awareness of how things feel, like you said, asking them questions and then also yeah, communicate using that language. Yeah. Also tons of also tons of research on as as I'm sure you know on internal versus external focuses, right? Then when we're when we're developing skills like uh skill acquisition happens more efficiently when we use external focuses. And so if you're telling them, hey, think about your, you know, doing this with your wrist, it's not nearly it's not going to be as a as efficient as if you tell them, hey, think about this feeling or that feeling. Right. Well said. As anybody who's played basketball at any level and has got like a little bit of a rhythm shooting, it's like you hear a lot of high-level basketball players that refer to their jumper as like being wet. And like wet is certainly not like a, a adjective that I would use to describe like a feeling, but it's like it, it just it comes this term for basketball. And then like once you do get a rhythm and you just feel the way the ball leaves your hand sometimes, it's like, oh yeah, it feels feels wet. You know what I mean? And it's like, and it's it's funny where like going back to your thing of like a, a word I would never use to describe the way shooting feels, but it's like, I don't you just get into it sometimes. Yeah. And it's like Buckets yeah. for days, baby. Buckets for days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't say I relate, but well, 
Yeah. Um, so that's really all I have for you on technical development, or not even technical development, but just on, I guess, questions that I wanted to ask you about motor learning and or genetics. Um, do you have any, uh, any thoughts as it pertains to that or anything else? Oh, I mean, I think it's, um, I mean, we could talk about technical stuff and, and, uh, and motor, motor skills and motor learning, um, for, for, for days and days, but, uh, I think it's, there's almost too much to talk about. So I don't think there's any point in delving into anything, but I think it's, I think it's really interesting stuff. And I was going to throw out to you, um, I was just going to, just going to share, I, uh, but before we turn on the mic, so I was telling you, but last week I was in, uh, Italy for a 25 K combined event and sat down for lunch and who was at the table opposite me, uh, uh, facing me, Kyle Edmund. And I looked up his ranking and he's now, you know, five something hundred in the world, uh, which I didn't even realize, but he was, he's been injured since 2021. He's got a knee injury. He's coming back. Um, and he's on the, he would have been like 15 in the world at some point, right? He would have been career high of 14. Exactly. Right. Look at me. Um, nailing it. And so, and he's on the entry list for next week. He's in qualities. I mean, the list might move, but he's in qualities for the 25 K next week there in Italy. Um, and just to, just to say, like, I, I mean, I guess it comes back. There's an, I, I looked it up before the pod and he had some interesting quotes. Um, you know, he said, um, it's given me a new perspective. I wouldn't say I was ever ungrateful, but when you've had your career taken away from you, it does make you appreciate playing professional sport for a living. I think maybe if I had known how long it was going to take, I would have done more stuff outside tennis. But when you're in the middle of all the rehab, you're just trying to get it better. I was so obsessed with needing to do what was necessary. And I'm quite stubborn like that. So it just obviously, I mean, it gave me two reflections. One is how brutal of a sport this is, of course. You right. know, you can be at the heights of the game and, and that can last for a few weeks or a few years uh, or a few months. But then at some point, um, you know, very, very few players have the privilege of staying up there for decades and decades like the big three have done. Um, and so, you know, it's how brutal of a sport it is, whether it's, whether it's because of injuries or whether you just can't, you know, you just had a really good run, but you can't replicate it. Um, but then also it just got me thinking about sort of our responsibility, especially being at a, you know, at a, at a, at a handful of 15s and 25s over the past 18 months here in Sweden, like looking also, I mean, you see, it's so interesting because of course you see players like this who were formerly top 50 in the world and then something happened and now they're two, 300. Um, but you also see. Uh, you also see the players who are like 25 and have been grinding away for the last six years at the exact same ranking. You know, they've been stuck between 500 and 400 or 500 and 600 for the last six years. And it just, you know, it's a reflection. We don't have to get into it, but we can, but it's just a a reflection on our role as coaches as well to set our players up for the future and set them up for after tennis. Um, Because it's so, you don't know how it's going to, how long it's going to last. And you don't know in a case like Kyle Edmund, like, First of all, did he appreciate it when he was up there? I mean, I think he, I think he did, but you know, do we have a role there as coaches to make sure like, Hey, let's appreciate the present moment um, because you never know when it can be taken away from you. But then also do we have a role as coaches to make sure that our players are set up for life once they retire, be it at 23 or be it at 43. Right. <clears throat> yeah. It didn't, I mean, even in you saying that, I find it interesting where like the competitor in me is when you, you talk about, coaching at a 25k and my immediate reaction is like oh, like jealousy almost it's like 25k like man i want more players to be at that level but then in hindsight it's like you look at a kyle edmund and it's like you might be thinking like i'm at a 25k like this is embarrassing you know what i mean right. so it's like where, yeah. where you are on that trajectory of your career is interesting but no i think it's how do you to your point how do you prepare an athlete for that like how do you prepare an athlete that one day it's going to be over 
And I, I, I say this to you because more, more of our athletes than not are going, their careers are careers and brackets are going to be over sooner. And especially mm-hmm. our athletes, like we're going to send a lot of kids to college, which is great. But I, I feel for the kids where it's like in their last year of college, do they really, really appreciate it? Do they really appreciate like, Hey, this is the last time I'm ever probably going to do any majorly meaning, meaningful tennis competition. Mm-hmm. And of course there's things you can do after college as well. Right. But, um, how, how do you prepare somebody for something like that, Zach? Oh, th- thanks, Al. I have all the answers. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I, yeah, it's tough. I mean, and I think, and I, and I said this in one of the earlier episodes, but I said like, it's almost a shame that our players, I, I said this like throughout their tennis journey uh, or their tennis career, they learn so many lessons that by the time they retire on the sort of mental, emotional maturity side of things, then they're actually ready to begin the journey. You know what I mean? If their bodies were ready, then they would have all the tools to equip them for the adversity and the struggle and the process. Um, So it's a shame that you can't, you can't do that. So I think that's paradoxical. eh? It is, it's, it's, it's wild, but that's sort of, and I mean, I guess that's why it's such a good tool for life if you use it the right way, but that's, that's the, the challenge that we have, but I don't know is the easy answer because it's very difficult, especially when you're young. And I mean, this is two young people talking, but especially when you're young, to gain to or to to have that sense of perspective of the long term because it's just you know you just you just can't fathom when you're 14 5 years ago you were 9 you were a completely different human being right yeah. when you're 30 5 years ago you're 25 you're slightly different between 50 and 55 it's like i mean i'm i'm not there yet but i, I don't think that there's tons of changes of course you change but you're still fundamentally i would argue a very similar person so all that to say that like it's very difficult, I think, for young people to grasp the the passage of time. And once again, putting myself in that same in that same category. But sure. um, so I don't know how you do it. I think you. I would hope you could do it with sort of reflection and just you know sort of gratitude journaling or, or just constant uh, you know e- expressions of gratitude and and reflection and uh, things like that. Sort of being being mindful and being present in the moment and and sort of teaching that approach to the to the players. But I don't know. It's tough. I got a I mean anecdotal story slash joke for you is a couple of coaching buddies and I we have this uh this sort of this shitty catchphrase or this shitty saying that we say when like it always worries me when there's athletes that take things way too seriously. Mm-hmm. Um and you alluded to this in, in the very first episode we did, you talked about like some of the greats and they, they never knew they were gonna be professional tennis players to some extent. But it's like you have some kids that walk around tournaments that might not be a super high level and like um they're homeschooled they do 20 hours tennis a week they don't have a friend group they don't have hobbies outside of tennis and anyway the the sort of the statement for me and my buddy is always like what are they going to do when tennis doesn't work out mm-hmm. it's a shitty thing to say about something but the reality is it's like i mean what is it 0.003 of people end up being professional tennis players yeah so with all this stuff it's like how can you you want people who are committed you want people that take shit seriously but in the same sense, it's like how well-rounded are are some of these people as humans? Yep. Um, I don't have the answer to that either. So don't even think about asking me. <laughs> but um, no, but a hundred percent. I'll wrap things off with a funny story, or it's not even a it's a it's an apocryphal tale, I guess. And I might tell it wrong, and then we'll cut it. But <laughs> it, I I but I thought of it at the very start when you said about uh, you know we'll we'll wind up in a fishing village in Sri Lanka. This is about as close. I, I'm going to do my best efforts to get us there and tie it all together. So we'll see how I do. Um, 
but there's a, a businessman, rich businessman goes on vacation and he goes to a tiny little village in Sri Lanka. I don't think it was originally Sri Lanka, but we'll say it was. Yeah. Um, and he and he goes and he I don't know, he he buys some fish or eats some fish and he goes, wow, this is really good. And he starts talking to the guy and and he says, what do you do? And he says, says, oh, I, I sleep in, um, you know, in the afternoon, I you know, I sleep in, I wake up with my wife and we we have coffee and we relax. And in the afternoon, I uh, I go uh, I go out to the to the dock and I fish for a couple hours and then I, I, I sell the fish and it makes me enough money to live. And I hang out on the patio at night and have a few beers and talk to my friends and uh, and then go to sleep. And the guy goes, oh, that's that's good. He goes, you know, I'm a, I'm a businessman from from North America and. Uh, you know, you could really expand your operation. He goes, how so? He says, well, I mean, if you, uh, you know, reinvested some of the money from these, from the fishing here, you could get yourself a boat and then you could go out in the boat where there's more fish and, and catch more fish. And he goes, oh, interesting. He goes, and then what? He goes, well, then once you were selling more fish, then you could uh, get a fleet of boats and, uh, and, uh, and hire some guys. And then you could have all these guys working for you catching fish. And then you could catch even more fish, make even more money. He goes, oh, interesting. He goes, and then what would I do? He goes like, well, then once you had enough money there, then you could start to export the fish and you could start selling it to neighboring countries and start set up shops elsewhere and 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 do all that stuff and then you'd be making really good money and and it goes on like this he goes uh, and then what do i do and he goes well then after a while once you once you made enough money then you can then you can sit back and retire and you can so you can, you can sleep in and take it easy and spend some time with your wife and go sit and you know, have some beers on the patio <laughs> it's like <laughs> well you know like what's the point like if we you know if you're already there that's the point. So I don't know how well I told that, but that's the that's uh, my attempt at tying all this stuff back together. No, it's interesting and well said. Um, but what I, what I'll leave you with is this is actually big. The gray zone breaking news. And I don't know if you're are you Whoa. ready? I think so. I'm okay. sitting down. We have been contacted by the host of the No Strings Attached podcast featuring Boggy D, Bogdan Gregorenko. Boggy D. So Boggy D has reached out and he said, hey, I like what you guys are about. And I said, Bogdan, I appreciate that. I like what you're about. And he was like, <laughs> that makes hey. one of us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then he said, hey, sometimes in my car, I start yelling at you guys because you're wrong about shit. And I said, <laughs> Bogdan, I agree with you. And he was like, no, OK. So the long story short was Boggy D was like, hey, I'm going to have Zach on my pod. And if you, if you haven't listened to Bogdan's pod, it's uh no strings attached podcast on um on youtube and i think he's now on spotify as well uh, but anyway he said um after he has you on he would love to do a, a collaborative episode where the three of us um just run through topics so i told Boy. him no chance pal hit the road <laughs> but that's it so sweet little, yeah, yeah been be been trying to set up a time uh for he and i to chat because uh because i'm really looking forward to it but that sounds cool yeah no i'm into it i'm into it Breaking we can news. like bully him and stuff and like team up on him and <laughs> yeah no i i think we should i think we should each come prepared with one completely bullshit fact and see if we can convince him of it <laughs> i love it i love it no that's great well that's i mean that's all the facts i come with every week are completely bullshit facts so that's uh... <laughs> bogdan didn't you know that everyone should play with their non-dominant hand it's the <laughs> best way to it's the, it works for Nadal. i think that we should have to do it that way yeah yeah uh, he's too smart for that, unfortunately. But nah, unfortunately. you'll get some of, some of them be with it. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> well, Zach, yes, enjoy your Easter. And yes, sir. Uh, there is no greater resurrection than this week's episode. So nailed it. That was the gray zone. 
Hey, look, it's bonus content. Before we started the show properly, Al and I were just discussing the uh, master's degree that I'm getting. It's a master's of high performance coaching and technical leadership. It's an online program um, at UBC. And uh, Al thought the discussion might be worth uh, chucking in at the end of the episode. So here it is. Would you recommend it to somebody? Let's put it this way. Like you, like you have to take the cost piece out of it. Like I think... What's the cost of it? For th- for the three years altogether, it's about twenty grand. But like, I do I think it's worth the money? No, that's like it's straight up. Outside of that, is it worth doing? I'd say yes. I think okay. like the like in my original in the in the first year, because then after the first year, you have to like reapply to do the two year masters and like anyway. And so, so the, the people you're with in the first year and the last two years are different. But in the first year, we were I don't know, I'm gonna say twenty people and like. 12 of them were at Tokyo, either for Olympics or Paralympics. Oh, wow, cool. like it's like, it's, it's, you know, it's huge. Like, so the, the people you're with are generally really experienced, really high level. The people that they bring in as well, there's the downside that like, on the one hand, so they try to bring in uh, people with practical experience to deliver the courses. Right. The the downside of that is that they're not always good teachers necessarily or good professors. Yeah. Right. However, the plus side is is you get to interact with a ton of people with like a with, with a lot of people with really great experience. So like, yeah. I'm just I just handed in my final project for business for business of high performance sport, and the person running that was Wendy Pattenden, who's the CEO of CSI Pacific, and she she's got you know decades of experience and was also top tennis player. So it's like okay really cool there the guy who ran our what, what was it called gap analysis class yeah. is chief something officer or whatever for own the podium right cool. and so yeah. like guy's legit and he's got and he's got his academic stuff but he's also got a lot of experience so like they bring in they do bring in people with a lot of real life coaching experience as opposed to just academics who sit there and write papers right. yeah so i so i think like yeah the people you meet and the, your 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 other your peers is cool i think like getting to interact with people who've done legit stuff in coaching is pretty cool. Um, and then I think as always just being held, held accountable to held accountable to like doing the work and then also um, being evidence-based, like yeah. you really have to like make sure you're doing your research and, and backing up the claims that you make. I think yeah. that's really beneficial because I think otherwise I've talked about this maybe with you or with others, but I think otherwise we just kind of get in the flow. If we're not doing something formalized, it's like, yeah, I read a book about this and I read an article about this. And it's like, but being, no, but I mean, it's, it's all of us, but I think like, but being held accountable to like, you're going to work on this and we're going to work on this project and you're going to learn these things. Of course it depends on how good the delivery is, but I think generally speaking, it's good for us as coaches to be, to be held to that uh, standard. So I'd say it's, yeah, of course there's lots of things that could be better, but I I would recommend it if someone doesn't mind, doesn't mind the cost. I think it's a, it's enjoyable. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we're recording this because maybe we actually throw this bit in at the end of one of the pods or something. Because it, yeah, it is actually, if if our if we do have a small base of people that are actually listening, then maybe that'd be interesting for them to hear. But um, yeah. So in the end, it's going to be it's a master's in high performance coaching or a master's in coach education. It is a it is a master's of education in high performance coaching and technical leadership. Interesting. That sounds so it great. Is, it is part of the. The, the department of education school of kinesiology okay so okay. so it's a... just it's just like you can get a master's of science in computer science or in right. xyz field so it's a master's of education 
but the field or the the type, you know, the degree or whatever is high performance coaching and technical leadership. Dr. Olin, I love it. Great. Not yet. Master. You can call me master if you want. Master. Um cool. Did you have to do an undergrad for that? No. You no. I never did an undergrad. No. So you can um if you have sufficient experience and uh you might need like uh yeah, you need endorsement from your national sport organization. But uh, if fun. you have enough if you have enough if you have enough experience <laughs> and you can get the right letters of recommendation, then um then you're good to go. Very interesting. Cool. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Thank you have you. to justify yourself and you have to do it twice, essentially. Like I had to do it when I applied for the first, the year. first year is a graduate certificate and then yeah. you can leave and you have a graduate certificate or you can reapply basically to do the two-year masters. And so uh, for both applications, I had to justify and say, here's why I'm qualified and here's all the things that I've done. Cool. Um, but I never felt like I wasn't going to get in. So. Sick. Great. Yeah.